Welcome to the Artipop podcast. As the founder of Artipop, I've always felt we live in a highly conventional era when it comes to motherhood. But also that change is near. Therefore, I created this podcast to give voice to different refreshing perspectives around motherhood and life in general. To empower you and all the women around you to trust their intuition. I've asked a journalist whose work I love Kaira van Wijk to host this series for you. Let's use our feminine energy to shape the future. I hope you're with me. Please enjoy. Great to have you back. Thanks for being here. Today we're having a special guest on, Dr. Zach Bush. For anyone who's not familiar with his work, Zach is a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology and hospice care. And I believe Zach to be one of the most compelling medical minds of our generation. He has a comprehensive understanding of the human organism, the natural environment, and the spiritual cosmos. Dr. Zach Bush and team have just launched a groundbreaking supplement called ION, reconnecting you with 60 million year old soil carbons frozen in time. Quite extraordinary. It works on the brain, the immune system, and digestion. And that really is just the tip of the iceberg. In this episode, Dr. Zach Bush speaks to an audience dear to his heart, mothers. He's generously sharing his vision on parenting and motherhood, and viewing this through the lens of humanity's quest and connecting back to nature. During our conversation, he shares his thoughts on many topics, such as how to prepare your body for a healthy birth, why there's such a rise in female infertility, and diseases among young children. What type of father he is himself, and what shifts need to happen for a more prosperous future and humanity's survival as a whole. He bridges science, spirituality, the intelligence of nature, and the power of humanity. Well, let's not keep you in suspense any longer. Here's Dr. Zach Bush. Hi, Zach. How are you this morning? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I know Anna is a huge, huge fan of your work. I feel like she might be your number one fan. <laughs> and I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts, and I feel like every time I listen to you, I learn something new. So oh, good. <laughs> I'm really excited for this conversation. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. I'm excited to be on with you guys. Looks like you have a very exciting company there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's a lot going on. I feel, um, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful community, most of all. What I thought was really interesting is you've actually started your career when you were very young working with mothers, expectant women. It's a long time ago, of course, but it was alongside a midwife who's also your aunt in the Philippines. And I was wondering, how do you look back on that time now? Thank you. Yeah, I, I, uh, that time was certainly remains very present actually with me and it's very formative on a frequent basis. Uh, Every birth that I've seen since then continues to reaffirm the miraculous nature of life itself. And it never gets dull. Uh, I've never been at a birth where my mind isn't sufficiently blown again at just the, the possibility that life can come from, from within us is really an extraordinary thing to witness. And it's easy to naturalize that in our mind as, as something well that's what you know every animal on earth comes from from themselves and but the very origin of energy and life and all of this that's 
you know, captivated the minds of philosophers and theologians since the beginning of uh, human thought is exemplified so well in this moment of, of birth. And, and so for me, it's uh, one of these touch points uh, in the human experience that brings us very near to witnessing that veil between our spiritual origin and the coupling of that spiritual energy center that we might call a soul to these physical bodies and uh, the marvel that that happens in those moments uh, of witnessing that body coming in the alertness of these infants as they come into the world how alert they can be and how much they're absorbing uh, in those first couple seconds and minutes of life is uh, so extraordinary and that's a touchstone that really carries all the way through, of course, until the, the end point of life where we see a similar moment where the veil again thins and we see this transition point from the physical body experience to the expansion of that soul into its second rebirth. So it's, a, it's an imp- critical touchstone for all of us. That's so beautifully put. And didn't this experience also change the whole course of your career? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. A major shift for me. I had been planning to go into an engineering career, had spent uh, all of my teen years kind of in the construction and in the automotive industries, uh, building cars and, and building houses. And, and so I thought I was probably destined to be working with my hands and all of that. And so uh, medicine was far from my radar screen, but I uh, decided to take a year off before starting my engineering program. Uh, and uh, wanted to travel. And within moments of of finding that out, my aunt called from the Philippines and said they were looking for help for the coming year and wondered if I'd be interested in volunteering there. had no medical experience. I warned her of that. And she said that they would teach me everything I needed to know. So it sounded like a unique experience. So I went ahead and took her up on that. So I lived there for six months. And even within really weeks of the experience, I started to realize that it would be hard to go back to what I had previously thought was interesting. Uh, it, it is so riveting to be in this epicenter of human life and death. I, I watched infants die there in poverty and starvation, and I, I watched uh, women die uh, in uh, without access to nutrition and without access to prenatal care and these high-risk pregnancies coming out of, out of this. And I also watched incredible resilience and health of women and strength of women uh, in delivering babies in, in these uh, you know, squats outside of Manila, Philippines, in these incredibly you know, impoverished tin shacks, dirt floors. And these women were birthing babies so naturally and with, with so little pain and with so little pomp and circumstance, it was so, simply part of their day. And so all of those continue to, to remind me that what we see happening in these Western civilizations with all the technology and all the birthing centers and all the, all the money we pour into this and, and all of the unnatural separation from nature that we put in around the birth process now uh, has a lot to learn from these cultures that are much closer to their indigenous roots than we are. You've mentioned there's a rise of chronic disease in children and of female infertility in developing countries, which, of course, is pretty disturbing. And to um, solve these issues and for all of our human survival, we need to begin to thrive with nature, just like you said, basically. Um, What do you feel are the biggest challenges we as a species now face and how can we tackle this? I mean, it's a big question, but yeah, I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit more on that. 
Yeah. So the our biggest threat right now, the existential endpoint of our species, this great extinction event that we've engineered, is focused down into the areas of soil, water, and air. And we have poisoned all three of those sectors through our technologies, and we've done it through many different industries. But I'd say that agriculture, ed- energy, and information technology, our IT you know, infrastructure with you know, the electromagnetic field disruptions that we create now, uh, those are the three biggest threats that we have. So agricultural probably being the number one as far as poisoning our soil and water systems, mm-hmm. contaminating air as well. Uh, then followed by the carbon particulate in the air from things like coal burning power plants and the like that, that poison the air. Um, followed by, you know, just that, that uh, airborne radiation that we, we communicate through with cell phones, computers, all the rest. So uh, a fascinating world that we've created that is really disrupting these three spaces. And what it, that has created is, is an extinction event. And so we've lost about 50% of life on Earth in the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can predict our own extinction sometime in the next 80 to 100 years on our current track of destroying biology on the planet through these, you know, undermining these areas of soil, water, and air. 80 to 100 years, that's insane. If we can already uh, look into the future, can we change that course or do you feel that's going to be really hard? Um, It is definitely uh, able to change that course. We can, you know, if we've learned anything from the recent pandemic, it's that humanity as a whole, 7.8 billion population can shift in a matter of moments. And so, I hope that people take away from the memory of the pandemic, not that there was some terrible virus, but that there was actually the opportunity to create systemic and systematic change across the globe overnight, uh, radically changing our transportation industry, radically changing the human behavior that was driving that transportation and energy sector, radically you know, coming to grips with what's happened to our food systems with these global supply chains that Uh, threaten our food security across every city in the world now at major risk for starvation with any disruption of these long supply chains that are 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 dependent upon oil and gas you know transportation and uh, energy sector for you know computer you know logistics and everything else that we depend on and so the idea that we could have widespread power outages and loss of loss of stability of the planet both through you know solar system events, uh, you know the the instability of the sun itself is becoming more and more evident uh, in recent uh, years, especially in the recent months. And then you put that on top of an already unstable Earth uh, geology and biology. Uh, the the solar system itself is is showing us signs of stress that uh, that are threatening the technology that we've created. And so what does human life look like after uh, the collapse of our technologic space? And what it would look like is, is the beginning of a different, you know, approach to living more in tune with nature again, as we did for thousands of years uh, and hundreds of thousands of years, really with the indigenous roots that we all come from, we were connected to that nature and we can get back to it very quickly. And unfortunately uh, our tendency as a human species is not to make any changes, especially drastic changes, unless absolutely necessary, unless some crisis hits us that forces the change. And so I believe that this pandemic was just a ripple of the the big waves that are coming towards us uh, to demand our return to a different relationship to nature. And that relationship might be death. 
Um, that return to nature might be through the death of our species, uh, but it may also be an opportunity for us to shift bef- before our extinction and realign not just our lifestyles, but also our, our technologic developments and all of that with uh, the possibility that uh, we could be uh, reinventing and becoming co-creative through our understanding of who we are and how we fit into the web of life on Earth, understanding the humble position we play in that, that web of life. Uh, we are not the manifest destiny, highest you know, organism, you know, the most important thing that's here to take over the world. We are a, a tiny little pixel of life that sits upon a massive web of life, microbial, uh, you know, soil, water, air systems, all of this. That's the biology that makes life inhabitable. We are the result of the intelligence of that system, and we depend wholly on that complex system that is non-human. And so when we come to terms with that, I think we design a different, different human society, a different technological foundation to it, a different sociologic, a different political structure, uh, all of which will be less extractive and more co-creative. If we zoom a little bit more in when it comes to motherhood in particular, um, what do you feel we could learn from nature, maybe also indigenous culture, as you mentioned, that would benefit parent and child in this current day and age as we hopefully move into different consciousness? Yeah, Yeah, it's a critical question. I think that the children that we're birthing right now will be the ones to have the ingenuity and the, the different neural wiring that we have today that will make the previous you know, paradigm impossible. And we call this ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorders. We call it autism spectrum disorders or Asperger's. And we have all these clinical names for children that are being born with different wiring. Mm -hmm. And uh, that wiring can be damaged significantly. And so children with these differently wired brains can have a significant neurologic injury that we call the autism injury, for example. Uh, They cannot be programmed with the current paradigm, even when you, you help the recovery of an autistic child they always see the world differently and it's impossible to impose on them the, the perspectives and beliefs of the, of the common narrative that we have around us. They simply see the world more accurately, I believe, mm-hmm. and they see it more brutally, honestly, than the current human brain uh, is capable of. Uh, the current human neurology, I think, is so adept at denial and of regressing into a lower state of vibration, a lower state of vibration, uh, meaning sensory experience. And so that we dull our senses so that we stay in denial easier to the the reality that we are creating around us. And that's not just in our technologies, but also in our relationships. I think we've really dumbed down our capacity to connect as human beings. We have forgotten the power of a hug and things like this. So For mother and child, setting this new foundation for these children that are now being born with a new neurologic connectivity, it becomes very important that we reduce the stress in that mother-child experience pre-conception, during conception, during uh, uterine life for that fetus, and then uh, that first few breaths and connection, that whole series of events we have an opportunity to understand that that mother is the beginning of that journey in a, in a much deeper way than we typically think of it. That mother is not just a human. It's she, in her best state, is a an example of an organic garden of microbes within her skin 
within her gut, within her vaginal canal. She's teeming with life and it is diverse and it is in communication. And that biodiversity and communication of biology within her is the foundation of life for that child. And we now know that the genetics uh, and the genomic information and intelligence of the microbes within the mother's gut, within her vaginal canal that then are inherited by that child as they especially as they transcend that vaginal canal with vaginal delivery, all of those moments are imprinting an epigenetic pattern on that child. And if that environment is stressed, if the mom goes into you know, the preconception or conception moment with increased chronic inflammation because she has leaky gut and leaky blood-brain barrier and leaky kidney tubules due to the toxicity of her food system, primarily herbicides, pesticides being you know, a big piece of that. And so these poisons laden in her food, Teflon. Teflon is the you know the coating on all these pans uh, coming out of you know uh, Dupont. All these years of decades now, this this chemical being imbued into our uh, water systems and into our food itself as we prepare the food that's already been poisoned. These chemicals are degrading the microbiome, degrading the intelligence of that mother's nature. And that is imprinting then that stress pattern on the child uh, upon conception. And we pass this stress level of biology, planetary stress embedded in the genomics uh, of that child now. Mm -hmm. And so when that child is born, not only are they often devoid of much of the biodiversity as the mother is exposed to antibiotics in her food through the, through the herbicides like glyphosate or Roundup, uh, through the, the antibiotics that are given oftentimes during birth. Um, and so through all these antibiotic exposures by, from physicians or food systems, uh, she's denuded and, and lacking the microbial diversity, the healthy soil for that child to be immersed in as they come into their, the world and take their first breath. So deficient in, in resources and then immediately poisoned by this and then immediately set up for the chronic stress patterns that mom is passing on through the epigenetics or the genetic patterns. And so when we start to think, what's the alternative, mm -hmm. it's really about getting that mother back into nature at an early stage. And so if we would start thinking as teenagers, you know, ideally, of course, as children, but in worst case scenario, as we become fertile and start moving towards, you know, long-term relationships and everything else, think of our bodies as that organic garden. It takes years to set healthy soil in motion. And so start building that healthy soil into our women at an early age. And so really embracing outdoor activity within nature for women when they're in high school, college, making sure that we've got them in the post-college stage that we are building businesses and the rest that are, of course, men equally important in many ways. But for, for that question that you ask around what can we do for women and children, what we really have to fundamentally change that relationship. We need to make sure our businesses are such that women are getting a lot of board board meetings outside of the office and the board meetings are now on hikes and they're in the woods. Uh, obviously the innovations and the ideas that are going to be generated from a board meeting like that is going to be much more interesting for humanity and, and nature than that done in a, in a drywall box under forced air and everything else. And so uh, I'm eager for us to see us reinvent the environment around women to understand that we are all participating in what we call the birth process at a very early time in that woman's life. And we have the opportunity to improve that and, and embrace this natural organic system within her 
before she moves into the effort to, to bear children. It's available to us all, of course. We can all go outside. We can all start being outside more. How does nature actually communicate with our bodies? Like, how does that work? How does her body respond to nature and vice versa? The levels are so deep. It, it, there are so many ways in which nature directly communicates. Um, we can start at the genetic level. You know, this last year has thrown everybody into this fear of viruses. That's a very tragic result of this narrative that we've had around this pandemic because, in fact, viruses are the origin of life. Uh, viruses are the mechanism by which bacteria and fungi and these single-cell life forms diversified over billions of years on this planet. And it was through the constant upgrades of genetic information swapping back and forth between bacteria and fungi and every life form thereof that began to build a matrix of what would become mammals and ultimately human beings. Mm -hmm. And so that genetic material is being upgraded by this kind of gain-of-function effort of biology. If, if a bacteria finds some new niche that helps protect it in a toxic environment of a volcano or acidic ocean or whatever you know natural event happened over those four billion years, when it finds a gain of function, it passes that information on to its uh, its surrounding through a couple of different mechanisms. It, it can do it through horizontal gene transfer, where it just touches another cell and passes genetic information back and forth. Uh, bacteria and fun fungi do this really aggressively. Protozoa can do this. Uh, mitochondria can do this within our cells. There's all these bugs that live inside of our cells that we call mitochondria. And in biology, you're taught that these are like human organelles and they're, they, they're the, the energy plant for the human cell, but that's actually very inaccurate. Those are actually back, specialized bacteria that have been living inside mammalian cells since the origin of multicellular life. And so these bacteria are passed on from generation to generation through our mothers, interestingly. Our, we do not inherit our father's mitochondria. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. And so the mother is the, the agent by which we are inheriting this genomic complexity of microbes within us. And so we have genetic swapping happening within the mitochondria and the, and the nucleus of our cells where we carry the DNA that we receive from mom and dad. We now know that that mitochondrial DNA is constantly swapping back and forth with the nuclear DNA through this horizontal gene transfer mechanism. In fact, the mitochondria have now outsourced a lot of their genetic information to nuclear storage because nuclear DNA is stored in a, in a more uh, careful fashion. It's edited and cleaned up more effectively than mitochondrial DNA. So any of the really critical genes to metabolism all the way to reproduction for mitochondria are often stored in the in the nuclear DNA of the human cell next next to it. And so this extraordinary relationship has developed over the, the billions of years between multicellular life and single cell life within us. And so we are swapping genetic information with the mitochondria. And now we know through the last 10 years that we're also swapping information with the bacteria that is on our skin, in our gut, everywhere else. Mm -hmm. And we do this through literal genetic information where we can update the genome with DNA or RNA. We can do that with horizontal gene, gene transfer locally with cells touching each other, or we can do it at a greater distance with exosomes or viruses, uh, which are these packets of genetic information that get sent out of our cells and out of bacteria and out of fungi. And so all living life forms are capable of, of trading genetic information out into the, into the environment to inform uh, uh, of genetic adaptation. And adaptation and flexibility in that genome is critical to survival of any species and the development of the biodiversity that we see on the planet. And so the viruses are one of the main ways in which we communicate. 
and they communicate important updates to the genome. It was a, a retrovirus similar to HIV that gave us the ability actually to have the placenta. Uh, we could not have live birth without that genetic update from a retrovirus that, that came into the, the mammalian biology to allow mammals to occur. Uh, previous to that viral update, we were dependent on you know egg, egg birth and you know the reptiles and all of that. And so to make that jump to live birth, we needed this critical viral update that gave us a new genetic sequence that allowed us to start to build the infrastructure that would protect the, the fetus from mom via the placenta and the uterine environment. Uh, similarly, uh, another virus was critical in, in uh, the formation of the human sperm. So we would not have been able to fertilize the first egg effectively without this viral update uh, that allows the sperm to dump its mitochondria before it, it trans, uh, translates or, or pushes its nuclear DNA into the, into the egg. And so in these incredible ways, we get to find out that nature is communicating through viruses with us mm. uh, since the origin of life. And this is how we adapt and how we create biodiversity and, and more biologic intelligence on the planet is through this constant swapping of information. It's trial and error over and over again. And so that all of these genes are around us all the time. 10 to the 31 viruses in the air that we breathe. There's 10 to the 31 viruses in, in the soil systems. There's 10 to the 30 viruses in the, in the ocean water. And so we're literally, you know, these numbers are massive, by the way, 10 to the 31, you can't wrap your mind around how big of a number that is. That's 10 million times more viruses in the air than are stars in the entire universe. And then again, that many in the soil and again, that many in the seawater. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're, we're literally swimming in a stew of genomic information that's communicating back to our genome in an effort to help us survive. And it's genetic updates that allow us to get through toxin events and, and find biologic loopholes to, to poisonings that happen from naturally from our environment or unnaturally from our environment you know, through human innovation and toxification. So that's the, one of the fundamental ways we communicate. But we're now starting to realize that uh, nature has a way of energetically interacting with us. And so uh, we now know that plants emit communication through vibration, similar to the way in which we use voice to create vibration to speak. Mm. Plants use infrared and, uh, and ultraviolet light frequencies to communicate between each other and to us. And interestingly, they can actually receive our vibrational information, both through the ultraviolet and infrared that we emit, but also through apparently the, at least the, the mix of vibrations that happens around thought and voice. And so there are lots of cool studies showing that if you think uh, kind thoughts and love and beauty into a plant, that it thrives in a much different way than if you project anger and frustration at a plant uh, or, or, or cause that plant to be in loneliness. You know, if, if there is no interaction with the plant, they, they also suffer. So uh, an extraordinary demonstration of the fact that we, we are energetically through frequency and vibration connected to the earth around us. And obviously that's not just plants, but if anybody's done any work with crystals, um, this is really well known. Uh, crystals obviously maybe in, in kind of the, the pseudo spiritual, psycho spiritual kind of world, we use them in one way, but anybody who's done any work with, with radio frequencies or digital technologies know that crystals are critical in the way in which frequencies are interpreted out in the atmosphere. And so we can't receive clear and translate those uh, vibrations into something like radio without these crystals, you know, being in the, in the matrix. And so 
uh, really cool thing that crystals are 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 this energetic you know waveform uh, antennae, if you will, and a lot of information is now streaming out of biology that's looking at the biophysics of something like DNA within our cells, starting to realize it's not just genetic information to make proteins, but it actually can, when in contact with healthy water, the DNA can form crystalline structure that can then also uh, receive very specific amounts of wavelengths or information from the waveforms of the universe. And this is thought to be now linked very closely to how we have self-identity. My genome is 99.999% identical to a pig, let alone all of the other humans out there. And so in that similarity with, with animals and humans, uh, we, we still are able to, with 7.8 billion people on the planet, able to identify ourselves. I've never woken up thinking I was you, which mm-hmm. is neurologically inexplicable. We've never found a, a part of the brain that is able of able to hold that level of, of self-identity. It seems to be more ethereal than that. Um, and so one of the theories that's now emerging is that the DNA in its crystalline form with fourth dimensional water or 4D water, which is kind of a gel state of water, when encoding DNA acting as crystalline structure acts as this tuned antenna that makes your reception of the information in the universe unique to you, therefore creating this self-identity event. Interestingly, we also now know through our lab that we've been working in the last eight years that nature also communicates through carbon. Mm. And this is a, a very interesting thing on a planet where biology here is dependent wholly on carbon. We use carbon for most of the life form structures, whether it's a plant or a human or otherwise. Uh, we also use carbon as the only you know, primary fuel source for the vast majority of that life on Earth. And so carbon, as it's digested by bacteria, fungi, and the like, breaks down into these complicated molecules that can uh, carry oxygen and electrons. And in that carriage of electrons, it can also function as a communication network. And so we've, in finding those molecules in 2012 and 13 in our lab, we started to work with fossil soils to see if we could pull the communication network from ancient soils before the last extinction you know, 55 million years ago. So we're going back in the fossil record, getting ancient soil and extracting all the carbon communication network that's still preserved in those fossils to understand what what did intelligent communication look like. And over over the last decade, we've turned those into dietary supplements for humans to experience this level of microbial intelligence. We've only been here for 200,000 years as homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. So every time somebody grabs a bottle of this liquid supplement, I get goosebump experience thinking that human being for the first time in human history, is about to experience microbial intelligence that that it's never touched before. And that human being is going to shift into a biology that we've never witnessed before. Because in our lab, we've shown over and over again now that the the human cell, in its capacity for regeneration, repair, and all of this, shifts into a speed of repair and regeneration that we've never seen under a, a microscope or in a petri dish before, because up until now, we've always studied cancer, heart disease, all of the diseases we've ever studied, we studied the human cell in isolation, thinking that it was a human disease process. Now that we start to add microbial intelligence into those Petri dishes, we see behavior in skin cells, in intestinal lining, blood-brain barrier, vascular linings, kidney tubules, start behaving in a radical way in which they understand three-dimensional structure and they can build three-dimensional structures in petri dishes, which has never happened before. They can regenerate protein structures and detoxification pathways at a speed never seen before. 
because we've never realized that the communication network of regeneration and, in fact, generation or birth of the human cell and its matrix of understanding it, its role in this multicellular you know, body that we are is informed by and made possible by microbial communication, microbial intelligence. So this has really brought us into a real clear view of why does every chronic disease that we understand, whether it's infertility, cancer, major depression, sleep disorder, sexual dysfunction, all of these now track back to deficiencies or injuries to the microbiome within our gut, skin, etc. And this is now starting to give us an idea of why that is. Each species of bacteria and fungi makes one of these unique shapes of the carbon molecules and their metabolites or breakdown processes of fuel. And that communication network, this wireless communication between cells, between bacteria and fungi, between bacteria and the human, this wireless communication network is the language of adaptation and repair. And so from the adaptation and genomic you know, gain of function of the viruses all the way to this wireless communication network of the carbon matrix, we're starting to realize that we are the result of this genomic intelligence, this communication intelligence of the, the biome at large. So fascinating. And it also just shows that everything is connected and how important it is, like you said before, also what we surround ourselves with, what we feed ourselves with, whether that is food or energy or anything really. Um, I also have a question for you for pregnant women uh, in particular and their partners as well, actually. Like, let's say a couple of months or a few days before childbirth, do you have any tips on how they can best prepare for a healthy birth, like maybe some practical tips or anything like that? Yeah, it's pretty straightforward in that you want to get that woman and her partner, you know, preconception, during conception, after conception into nature. And so the more you can work, you know, hikes, uh, if it's just hiking on the trails in the woods around you, uh, get into as many ecosystems as possible is a really cool trick. And so uh, the microbial diversity and uh, dominant species around a waterfall is much different than at an ocean, which is much different than at, in a desert, which is much different than a rainforest. And so the more environments, the more macro ecosystems that you can touch, the more diversity you'll get in the micro ecosystem of your microbiome and the bacteria and the fungi that are informing your health. And so that's, I think, one of the most critical things is start to build a lifestyle around uh, our, our youth and you know, women and partners uh, moving towards pregnancy into these, these nature environments that foster uh, microbial diversity at its core. Mm-hmm. Following that, then you're looking at how do you clean up the water and air systems. And so if you're living in an urban environment or if you're living in a heavily agricultural environment where there's a lot of airborne toxins, uh, herbicides, pesticides in the air, et cetera, then then working to clean the air within the home, uh, get get cycling HIPAA filters. Uh, You want to clear something called PM 2.5, which is a a carbon particulate in the air, especially in urban and, and areas near refineries and other Uh, oil and gas uh, type uh, systems. And so clean the air and then clean the water. And so most municipal water systems are, I believe, too too toxic to drink uh, and and consider yourself healthy. There's so many endocrine disruptors in the water now from microplastics all the way to birth control pills in the water. Birth control is the the estrogen and progesterone and birth control is the, the typically the highest you know concentration of any compounds within municipal water because women on birth control pills are peeing most of that estrogen and progesterone out 
and ends up in the municipal water system and it does not remove uh, from that water system through filtration or other mechanisms. These are tiny little uh, hormones. And so not only is the plastics disrupting it, but estrogen and progesterone is disrupting both male and female biology in the form of birth controls, uh, pills in the water. Uh, deeper than that, then you get toxicity through you know trace uh, heavy metals and things like that, whether it be mercury or lead or other things in the, in the water system or in the air system around us. So clean the water, a huge fan of something like the Berkey water filters, things like that. Uh, I'm not a fan of the alkaline water philosophy. That's actually a, a scientific uh, mistake that was made around the marketing of, of those things. So not a huge fan of uh, the alkaline waters that are out there, uh, uh, water should be consumed at a pH close to seven, uh, a neutral pH. Uh, but that's an aside. So uh, just a good quality, you know, natural-based uh, filtration system uh, would be good. So uh, carbon filters are, are adequate uh, to begin that process you know, or to improve that water. But if you can get something uh, that's one of these longer filtration processes like a Berkey, um, that would be you know, a step in the right direction. If you're drinking reverse osmosis water, you want to make sure you're adding minerals back in. So the ion product that we make is a good example. It's the one that we were talking about earlier with the communication network. Uh, you can just put a couple drops of that into you know, a liter of water to get enough mineral content in there to, to reduce the, the harm of the water itself. Uh, pure water is not actually good for the body. You, you want mineral content within the water before it hits the biologic membranes of your mouth and gut and all of that. Um, so put a, if you don't have access to you know a, more complex stuff like ion, then just you could begin with something like Himalayan sea salt or something like that, and drop some mineral salts into the water to have a similar effect. So um, the water, air, soil, nature environments that you can get that woman and her partner into in those those weeks and. And letting that baby listen to nature is a cool concept once in the womb. So once that child's in the womb, uh, bringing that child near a tree, for example, uh, that, that baby is going to be able to pick up all of the uh, infrared and, and ultraviolet waveforms coming out of that plant. And so a cool concept is that, that nature can be speaking through the, uh, the abdominal wall and through the womb uh, to that child directly. And so who wouldn't want to be sung to by the trees and by the ferns in the, in the forest, uh, in the womb. And so, uh, remember that nature is, is reaching out to your child before it's born and, and bathe that child in that, in that nature. That's absolutely beautiful. I'm also curious about when it comes to childbirth, what are your ideas about home birth, hospital birth? Um, there are different methods of birthing like water birth, for instance, um, c-section as well of course what are what are your thoughts on this beautiful yeah i think the closer you can get that birth process to nature probably the better right uh, so in the same way you know mom's vaginal canal is a very important piece of this puzzle so uh, avoiding antibiotic exposures through your food so making sure you're eating as organic as possible as close to the soil as possible know your farmer know, know a csa or a farmer's market or something near you where you can really be tapped into healthy food high biophotonic energy within that food with as little toxicity as possible. So take care of mom's vaginal canal. And then when you start to then ask the question, should I be in the hospital or should I be at home? The answer is typically home there in that you've, you've got so much more microbial diversity in a home than you do in a hospital. Hospitals have decided that nature is against them. And so they spend all of their time trying to sterilize surfaces and they're you know, putting bleach or alcohol sanitizers all over everything. And so these hospitals, in their effort to sterilize, destroy the microbial diversity within them. 
And that makes them very prone to things like hospital-acquired infections and everything else because you've destroyed the balance of the biome and now you get these you know, pathogenic-type behaviors of bacteria that otherwise would be totally safe, but they become you know, infectious in their loneliness, in their separation from the biodiversity. They lose uh, their natural control systems and they can overgrow. And so you can get you know, urinary tract infections, vaginal infections, you can get you know, bloodstream infections, you can get wound infections in the case of uh, you know, a, a pot, episiotomy or a C-section, whatever surgical event is happening. All of these become prone in, in that hospital setting. So with a healthy woman uh, going through a healthy 40-week 40 pregnancy, I would say that your, your best bet is as close to nature. And in, in many cases, that's going to be home. And thinking about that home, how do you prepare the home? How much fresh air is that home getting? How clean is the air of the home? You know, you can really do some preparatory efforts to really uh, clean up the, the environment around the home and create diversity, which means more plant life. Are you gardening? Are you walking into the house? Do you have pets? If you have a dog in the house, you, you radically improve the microbiome diversity within the home. Uh, so these are some really neat ways in which you can start to imagine what's the ideal place for that birth to occur. And certainly in the Philippines, you know, a lot of the most successful births I saw were literally on dirt floors in, you know, these, these shacks. And so uh, I think they were so healthy and there was so little pain in these women, which is a very different scene. I was so shocked by the amount of pain I witnessed in Western medicine hospitals during the, the birthing process compared to what I saw women going through who were barefoot on dirt floors touching Mother Earth. And it would not be surprising to think Mother Earth is there to support the birthing process in, in the deer, in the sheep, in the human, you know, whatever animal it is. The birthing process should be less painful than it is. But by our separation from literally the planet itself through all of our technology and, you know, all of the, the artificial boundaries that happen when you look at a hospital room, you're so far from Mother Earth at that point that she can't support that. And, and I think in her isolation, the woman not only experiences more pain, but she literally feels like she's going at this alone. And you can, can feel this like desperation in a lot of women in the hospital setting where they just feel so isolated in the, in the experience of the pain, in the extremity of what labor is, in the extremity of what childbirth brings. Uh, when she's not connected to nature, when she's not connected to Mother Earth, I think it's a much lonelier and more desperate journey. And so thinking about that birthing environment, uh, maybe you're not laboring on the dirt in the backyard, uh, but if what you should be doing, though, is walking between your as much as possible between contractions in the backyard or in the park when you're in early labor and get barefoot. Let Mother Earth talk to your baby. Let Mother Earth support you as a mother uh, as you start to move into what will be one of the most extraordinary and extreme events of your life. Make sure Mother Earth is part of that. Make sure you're touching her with those bare feet on the soil at some point in the journey and ask her to help help bear the pain that might occur and help her uh, to to pour strength into you. I believe she will hear that that request and, and honor that. And I was also wondering, uh, when it comes to nutrition, what is your take on breast milk versus bottle milk or other types of nutrition that we tend to give to infants in the Western world and young children? Yeah, each of the you know, as soon as you move away from breast milk and you move into formulas and all of this, unfortunately, you've you've lost the fundamental connection to nature for that child. You know, all all of our formulas are some of the most processed foods on the planet: processed soybeans, processed proteins, pea proteins. All of these have been extracted from their natural state. None of them have their original fiber with them. None of them have the original carbohydrate structure around those proteins. And so we have these highly processed, highly unnatural 
you know, uh, formulas that are going into millions and millions of babies worldwide now every day. And it's a, a tragic miss. And it really sets these children up for chronic ear infections, strep throat, and, and uh, you know, poor innate immune systems. These are the children that, you know, are, are prone to cancer, heart disease at weird ages, autoimmune diseases at early ages, type 1 diabetes to thyroid conditions, all of this. And so uh, from that C-section moment when you're born under a sterile incision instead of through the, the biodiversity of the vaginal canal, you're already deficient. You're already set up for failure in that microbiome uh, effort. And so C-section is a big injury if it's not managed correctly. And by managing it, you need to remember the microbiome. And so uh, fortunately, vaginal swabbing is becoming more common, although still you know, the extreme minority of C-section births. But what should happen in a C-section is that during the, during the C-section, the nurses can actually collect the vaginal mucus uh, and its microbiome through just the large uh, cotton swabs and all of that. Uh, sadly, it's hard to get an organic cotton swab these days, and the vast majority of cotton swabs are imbued with genetically modified cotton that is covered in Roundup or glyphosate, which is, of course, a toxin and an antibiotic. And so you can damage some of that microbiome even with those uh, inorganic swabs. And so... The, the most, you know, uh, most prepared woman will actually shop for her own cotton, organic cotton swabs and be ready to equip those you know, long stick swabs to, to her nurses or midwives uh, during the birthing process so that if C-section occurs, they have swabs covered in her, vir her, her virome and microbiome uh, within her vaginal canal to then swab the baby down as soon as it comes out of the sterile wound of the, the C-section. And so that child should have face, nares, the, the nose passages, the ear passages, mouth, uh, all the way to the rectum, just all the skin covered uh, with that microbiome as aggressively as possible in those first couple of hours after birth to make sure that that child is inheriting mom's microbiome and not the hospital mi microbiome, which of course is going to be a tiny fraction of anything that we would consider a, an intelligent uh, genomic sequence or genomic variety uh, for that child to be bathed in. So vaginal swabbing in preparation for C-section, uh, home births as often as possible, get nature involved at each of those steps and, and we'll, we'll have a better outcome. And say, I'm just curious, for instance, like some mothers, they have to go for a bottle milk, for example, uh, because of whatever reason. Do you have any advice for that maybe? Like uh, what could they best pick if there's really no other option? Well, I think actually... Uh, I I think that your baby carrier is one of them, actually. <laughs> and uh, I didn't anticipate giving a push for your product here, but uh, this comes up because you want skin-on-skin -skin contact. And so the idea of mother's skin on, on baby skin becomes even more critical uh, when there's no breastfeeding happening. You need the child to be informed by the mother's skin, and that's what breastfeeding does for the child. And so one idea is to have the child suckle, even if not getting enough nutrient, but having the child suckle on mom's breast after a feeding or something like that. So if you have to breast or bottle feed, giving the opportunity for the child to, to have the comfort of, of suckling um, you know, after the feeding or at, in the evening once a day or wh whatever the mother's schedule allows for, uh, allowing that child to suckle the breast will inform the gut flora of that child with the mother's microbiome. Uh, the microbiome of the, vi of the vaginal canal is supposed to dominate and does dominate the child's skin and gut flora for the first few months of life. But after a few months of, of breastfeeding or suckling on the breast, that baby's microbiome starts to reflect mom's skin flora more than her vaginal canal flora. And so there's this really cool 
adaptation and, and transition of the microbiome of the infant uh, from vaginal to skin floor over those first few months, which is a big part of that child developing their adaptive immune system. Uh, the adaptive immune system is where you start to understand how to make antibodies. That child doesn't make any antibodies for three, first three to six months, which is an interesting caveat to, to our the current narrative around antibodies and vaccines to, to protect you from this global virus is totally scientifically erroneous now. That's like 30 to 100-year-old science that, that believes that. And so everybody who now studies viruses is very aware that our main mechanism for, for maintaining our daily relationship to viruses is through the innate immune system, not through the adaptive immune system. So that's a bit of a side, but the innate immune system is alive and well in a newborn baby that is devoid of the, the herbicides and pesticides. The herbicides and pesticides and these other chemicals within the, the food system start to break down the innate immune system and alter their relationship to the virome and the microbiome in those first few months. The adaptive immune system happening much later in life is really more targeted towards the bacteria than it is towards viruses. And so there's a few viruses that, that have structures very similar to bacteria, and those were the very few viruses that we were successful in building vaccines to. The smallpox would be a good example of this. The smallpox have a, a shell around them very similar to the surface proteins of bacteria and allowed us to build a successful vaccine to that, that specific virus. Uh, but things like coronavirus and flu virus and all of these things, these don't have those, those shells. And so we rely on the innate immune system, which is this daily relationship between the microbiome and the mom's boundary system. And so the, the, the tight junction barrier of her gut, her skin, all of this, that is the beginning of her innate immune system. And she's passing the intelligence of that innate immune system on through her microbiome, through the suckling, breastfeeding, also through any physical touch. And so skin-on-skin -skin contact in those first few months is critical, especially if the baby's bottle feeding. Yeah. And I also wanted to ask you about building immunity, which you touched on a little bit as well, of course. And and I guess it also comes down to, like you said, uh, clear water, soil health, and so on. Could you explain briefly how important this healthy soil is for proper nutrition? And actually also, what would the future foods look like for you in an ideal world? I can imagine, of course, with healthy soil, but if you could dream that up a little bit for us. Yeah, so um, the immune system is, is another science that radically changed over the last 20 years. Uh, you know, And still it's taught in, incorrectly at medical schools around the world and everything else. Like, uh, But the, the public belief system around this reflects the last you know 100 year belief system which was that the human immune system is this organ system that combats bacteria and viruses fungi and the like to be totally sterile and only a sterile body is healthy so i was certainly taught that in spades and i i really came to to see that true in the icus because i got so afraid of infections and so infections kill you know you know second third fourth leading causes of death, pneumonia and, and sepsis and all these other things that happen, um, we, we can see this fear of, of infections story that drove our belief system about germ theory and all of this, that drove our belief system that the healthy immune system was a human structure that sterilized the body. Unfortunately, as we, or of course, fortunately, but unfortunately to our, our previous paradigm, but fortunately for human life, we find out that we were completely wrong about that, that the human immune system is a, an erroneous concept. The immune system is actually a description of the relationship between bacteria, fungi, our microbiome, the virome that we breathe into the human cell environment. 
And that relationship cannot be defined within the human space. It's the mechanisms of communication and interaction of these multiple species that actually create what we would call an immune system. And the function of that immune system we now have to come to terms with is not to sterilize the body. Through genomic sequencing, we now know that there is bacteria and fungi in every single organ system of the body in the healthy state. That's much different than our belief that any bacteria or virus that's showing up in the bloodstream must kill us. Right now, in my blood, as I sit here comfortably in a healthy state, I have 10 to the 15 viruses in my bloodstream. That's you know 10 billion viruses in my bloodstream just coursing around um, any given moment. And so we have this massive load of viral information. In the same way, I have bacteria and fungi and yeast that's in my brain, that's in my, you know, in my liver, in my kidneys. And this microbiome in its balance actually fosters not only the healthy cell, but also helps in damage control. And so when injury occurs, this microbiome within our organ systems responds. This has been very difficult to get into medical practice and medical belief systems, and and this is why medical students to this day are not taught any of this information, even though it's broadly understood in in cell biology. It's not taught to our doctors because their their toolbox is so oriented towards killing that the bacteria, towards killing the fungi, etc. All the antimicrobials were were the antifungals, the antivirals, all these drugs that we've been. Uh, you know, given as our toolbox to create human health, we would have to rework all of that philosophy if we were to acknowledge just how vital the microbiome is to us. But we know that we do direct, you know, damage to the to those systems if we damage the the ecosystem within them and within them. So, so that's a long winded answer, as usual, to a simple question of what is the the human immune system? It's not. It's neither human or sterilizing. It's now understood to be the relationship between diverse ecosystems and species, and it's there to create balance, not extinction of, or sterilization of, of bacteria within our bodies. And so it's it's that adaptation behavior that we need to start to embrace, which will help us you know, prepare for next pandemic much differently. We've run around the whole world spraying toxic herbicides and, and into the air and antimicrobials and all of this, in, in an effort to sterilize the environment, which is ludicrous because we now know that air microbiome is one of the most critical things for community health. And if we screw up that air with these chemicals, we then undermine lung health, which means we're going to be more prone to respiratory viruses. And so we, I hope this is the last time we completely screw up global public health through our belief that we should be sterile, that, that through our belief that somehow viruses are attacking us. Viruses are never attacking us viruses, if in an unhealthy relationship to us, it's because of what we've done to the train of the human body to bring us out of relationship to these viruses. And so uh, we, we have a lot of work to do to re-understand uh, in a more humble fashion that the human body, again, is not some you know, penultimate you know, magnum opus of creation. We are just a semblance of you know, organized microbiome diversity within us that creates the health and vitality, in fact, intelligence of the human experience, all being dictated by the biodiversity within us and, and outside of us. But I also love um, your vision, your idea about decentralization and how this could be key in creating a healthier, fairer world, really. And I would really love for you to explain this concept through the lens of our children's school system, like how we could improve yeah, schools for our children as well. Yeah, so you know we can look at any any human made system, whether it be government, uh, oil and gas industry, information technology. 
we have become masters of monopoly, right? And I would, I would put this certainly on medicine too, where we monopolized biology. We thought humans deserved all of the biology. And so we were willing to kill all the other species that we would have more resources for the human species. We do that through almost all of our, our efforts as a species. And uh, through that extinction of other species, we get more and more lonely and we get more and more isolated from our biology. But if you look at the mechanism by which we cause all that damage, in general, it's through centralization. It's through this monopoly scaling kind of approach to everything in life. Build it bigger is better. But, you know, you got a company, great, build it bigger. Uh, you, you got a successful big company, great. Buy other companies to become even a bigger company. You know, as we think about centralization as a part of the fundamental problems of what we create, uh, the solution becomes clear, and it's, as you state, decentralization. And when you decentralize a system, it becomes more biodiverse immediately. I believe that will begin in our schools, as you say. And so we need to start to ask children, what would you do with this information? Here's an equation. Here's A squared plus B squared equals C squared. That, that's how you describe a triangle. How would you start to use the information of triangles in your life? Uh, how many triangles can you think of? And the child will start looking around the room because they've been programmed by adults already. And they'll say, well, there's a triangle, there's a triangle, or I can draw a triangle and I can figure, I can put triangles together. But then if we, we ask them to, okay, forget about the triangle as a physical drawing. What about the concept of three points in space being connected? What would happen if you had three friends instead of just one friend? What happens when you start to triangulate human life with plant life? What if you had two plants in relationship with you in your bedroom? What would that do to create a triangle between you and two other plants. And so help children start to understand that they have the freedom to apply pieces of data or information that they're learning to everything in their life. Uh, and, and that kind of decentralized thinking would be fostered by a decentralized, non-hierarchical education system, where instead of trying to get every ch child into Harvard or into Oxford, we're instead trying to get our children into nature. And, and, and asking our children to learn within natural systems and that this is accessible to everybody from every socioeconomic environment and it shouldn't cost 50,000 euro a year to learn and to, to actually become co-creative in your thinking from that learning. The application will be much more obvious if we teach in classrooms within nature rather than classrooms in marble halls and, and you know, massive dorms and everything else. And so we need to think about decentralizing and bringing nature back into education and vice versa. Um, I was also wondering, what do you feel is the role of the guardian um, yeah, with children? And, and also, what type of father are you yourself, actually? Uh, so those are complicated questions. So, you know, um, the parenting experience, uh, my children are grown up now, so my son's turning 23 here next month, and, and my daughter's almost 21 here, and so um, they're both out of college already, and, and they're, they're doing their adult things and you know, running companies or, or working for companies and doing interesting things. And you know, in the journey towards that you know, recent experience of seeing them completely independent in so many ways, uh, I think that the best parenting advice I can give is, is surrender and um, realize that in the same ways that we need to decentralize our education system, we need to decentralize parenting. Your children will learn far more if it's not from you. And that doesn't need to mean homeschooling learning. I mean the thoughts you have, the beliefs you have. Expose your children to more diversity of belief and thought. Uh, expose your children to as many mentors as possible. 
uh, sports is one way we reach mentors, but, but look for more unique ways to get mentors into your children's lives. Is there internships they can do at young ages uh, where they could be in a work environment with other people with other beliefs? Is there somebody that you know that could take them to uh, a place of worship that is different than your own place of worship or, or spiritual belief system? Is there a way for you to diversify their experience and their sense of self uh, through uh, getting them connected to elders that are not uh, necessarily direct family members? Is there ways for them to sit with an elder and learn to play chess in the park or something like that? You know, And so uh, surrender your child to a greater environment of influence, a greater in- environment of mentorship. Um, and don't forget the trees, which trees are teaching our children. And uh, for our kids, we, we had them out in nature as kind of part of their weekly thing. They had to write in journals of what they were learning from nature and so that they could do just about anything they wanted. They could write a poem or they could draw a picture uh, as inspired by the nature they were sitting in. And so we have all these, you know, innumerable pictures of pine cones and sticks and trees and things as, as the kids moved from kind of, you know, five years old uh, up into their high school years, um, seeing things differently and, and learning from that. And I, I think that that was one thing that almost accidentally kind of came into their, their experience. Um, and uh, I would hold that dear uh, to think about how you diversify your children's input uh, and, and decentralize uh, influence from you. Uh, to uh, a decentralized system of, of many multifaceted inputs of experience, beliefs, otherwise. I love that. Yeah. And lastly, this is actually Anna's question. What would you like to say to every expected mother out there in this very moment about the now or about the future? The most important thing about the future is our ability to erase the past influence on the now. And so Uh, The weird reality of biophysics is that uh, our body is new every millionth of a second. We we are appearing and disappearing every millionth of a second at the atomic level, the way in which atoms interact between their electrons and protons. The physical state of being in a solid state is ethereal. It's not actually a constant at all. So the physical nature of a single atom and therefore a single molecule is always in flux. And the only reason why we have these long patterns of epigenetics and all of this is because we fail to create a pure now moment that is not based on the past. We have a tendency to live in a past to present status where we are imprinting the past beliefs, imprinting our past stressors and all of that on this moment and therefore predicting that the next moment is going to look a lot like the previous moment. So if we're in a stress, decay, illness process, we're going to continue that process until something comes along to break the pattern and give us an opportunity of silence to step into a new moment where we erase the past for a moment long enough to have a new now, and then we have a new future. And so that means that as a a species, as a society, we're going to have to be so kind to one another, so generous to one another, that we would forgive everything of the past for a moment so that we could imagine a new future together. I think that's a perfect note to uh, to end on. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. Um, I absolutely loved our talk. And yeah, we'll stay in touch, of course. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you'd like to know more about Anna's idea of the new motherhood, head on over to the pilot episode where she explains more about this. Please hit subscribe if you'd like to be notified when a new episode is up. Also, we'd be very happy to get your feedback 
and possibly suggestions for new topics or interviewees. Hope this episode informed, inspired, open up your mind in some way. Until next time.